I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, Richard, this is going to be a tougher show than usual. It is indeed. You and I see this episode differently, Jim, in tone and substance. So I've got my helmet on. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's how How Do We Fix It is supposed to be, right? I mean, discussing tough issues with plenty of room for conflicting opinions. Is green alarmism a problem for the environmental movement? We speak with Michael Schellenberger. So I hope that Republicans read Apocalypse Never and steal all of the ideas in it and use it to bludgeon the radical left, which is our common enemy, and it's really the enemy of the well-being of humanity. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? This is Michael Schellenberger's second appearance on How Do We Fix It? He joined us way back on episode 46 to talk about the environmental case for nuclear power. As longtime listeners know, that's a favorite subject of mine. And Michael leads the group Environmental Progress. He's a longtime advocate for more pragmatic, technology-based responses to environmental problems. But Michael is also very controversial and picks fights with others in the environmental movement. I hear somebody who has has some interesting arguments, but makes them in a way that drives away potential allies by dismissing their opinions and sometimes even their motives. I think a bit of contrarian flack is just what the environmental movement needs. There's too much fuzzy thinking in environmentalism today. There's too many people embracing solutions that might sound good, but not only do they not work, they might make certain environmental problems worse. Michael's new book is Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. He's a science writer, and he challenges some core claims made by environmentalists. You and I disagree on the argument made here, Jim. We'll have a lot more to say in our conversation after the interview. We will. But let me just set up the interview by noting that, you know, Michael tends to focus a lot on the the things he's arguing against. But the book is also full of a lot of proposals for climate change, habitat loss, and and other really important issues. It's going to be a lively episode. Michael joins us from Berkeley, California. Welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. As a way of introducing your book, you recently wrote an essay called, On Behalf of Environmentalists, I Apologize for the Climate Scare. But you're not a climate denier. I mean, you've spent 20 years or more fighting climate change, what do you have to apologize for? 
Well, I did participate in, I think, uh, the alarmism. I called climate change an existential crisis, which suggests that it threatens the future of the human species or at least human civilization. I don't think that's true. I called it a crisis. I don't think that's the accurate word either, because a real crisis is like the pandemic where we all stay home. You know, largest event of collective action in, in a world history, maybe, or the financial crisis of 2008. One reason, Michael, that you decided to write your new book is that you have a teenage daughter. Yeah, I mean, she's fine because I explained that to her the science and she and she's fine with it. But I did interview her friends and they're very scared. Um, we now know that one out of five British uh, uh, children have nightmares about climate change. There's uh, Washington Post did surveys that found a majority of teenagers are frightened about climate change. I think it's become for today's young people what nuclear war was for us, something that they view as threatening their lives. They could die from it directly. And that's just not what climate change is. Now, some people would say just in the interests of getting political action to happen and change to happen, maybe it's a good thing to get people a little afraid. I mean, Greta Thunberg famously said, I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. Doesn't that have some utility if you're trying to push for rapid change? I think it's an empirical question. Has climate alarmism resulted in progress on climate change? I don't think it has. I think it's actually, if you, and what I point to is that the biggest reductions in carbon emissions have occurred from the transition from coal to natural gas and or coal and natural gas to nuclear, both technologies are opposed by the vast majority of climate alarmists, including Bill McKibben and Greta Thunberg and Naomi Klein and Naomi Oreskes and all of the other major figures behind the climate alarm. And so I don't think so. I think that, in fact, to the extent to which climate alarmism gets political coalitions elected that are explicitly anti-nuclear and anti-fracking, anti-natural gas, I think it potentially has the opposite effect, which raises some really serious questions about whether climate alarmism is actually about reducing carbon emissions. Is climate alarmism even about climate change? I would quarrel with the notion that all of the environmental movement is engaged in climate alarmism. Um, for instance, and I'm pretty familiar with their work, the Environmental Defense Fund, Fred Krupp has written a lot of op-ed pieces in the Wall Street Journal, and he's partnered with a lot of business organizations. And also, ADF is, is neutral on the question of nuclear power. So I, I'm just wondering whether everyone involved in the environmental movement, in your view, is a climate alarmist. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I do quote in the book, people, including climate scientists, who have pushed back on the alarmism, the really extreme example. So I quote a NASA scientist pushing back on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that the world's going to end in 12 years. Um, I do want to acknowledge where that occurs when it occurs. But are you concerned about the threat of climate change? I mean, perhaps not alarmed, but concerned. Mm -hmm. I am concerned about the threat of climate change. I think that climate change is real. I, I think it's a serious environmental problem. I don't think it's the most serious environmental problem, but I wouldn't rank it as high as, say, you know, loss of habitat, the continued use of wood fuel by poor people, the, the persistence of extreme poverty, 
which actually is what often drives destruction of forests on the forest frontier. So I would I would define those as bigger problems. And I think I am less worried 15 years after I became most alarmed about climate change. I think I'm less worried today, both because I think I understand the science better, but also because we've had this natural gas revolution that has proven to be incredibly beneficial in terms of reducing emissions. So my view is basically really what matters is just nuclear because Gas is fine. The gas revolution is, ha- is happening. The gas industry doesn't need my help. It doesn't need anybody's help. The The future of nuclear energy is in real question right now, uh, not just in the West, but globally. And so my view is the more nuclear we do, the less warming, <laughs> the less nuclear, the more warming. And that, I just kind of look at it that way. And so it's kind of like if you're alarmist about climate change, then help us build more nuclear plants because that's the main thing that will move the dial. You know, as a member of the press, I feel like I've seen this firsthand a lot. We in the press do tend to grab the more dramatic examples and, and more dramatic headlines get more clicks. So you're quite critical of the way the press reports on climate science and creates a, an exaggerated view of what the actual climate scientists are saying. Yeah, that's right. So I defend the IPCC science of climate change. Explain for our listeners what the IPCC is. Oh, sorry. Right. So the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's the body of scientists that that uh, that accumulates and sort of condenses and synthesizes the science. So the science they review of the itself of climate change, I think, is basically pretty good. There's some exaggeration, but it's not too bad. But then you get to the summary for policymakers and then going from the summary to the press release. And then you go from the press release to the press conference where these alarmist scientists often are the most aggressive and they get the they have the loudest voices. And then you get to the journalists. And then now in recent years, we've seen you get the media coverage, which is the most alarmist. And now in recent years, we've now seen books that actually exaggerate the media coverage. You know, Michael, some of what you're talking about reminds me of a book uh, that I was uh, actually a narrator for, which is Factfulness, 10 Reasons Why Mm. We're Wrong About the World. It lists all the things that have improved, like reducing infant mortality, increasing life expectancy, and vastly reducing global poverty in the last 30 or 40 years that runs completely counter to what most of us believe. Well, so, okay, so there's obviously consequences of economic growth on the natural environment, but there's also benefits of economic growth on the natural environment. So what we've seen is that in 40% of the world, there's been reforestation, there's a greening of Europe. Um, as European countries moved away from wood fuel towards fossil fuels, as they intensified agriculture, growing more food on less land, they've been able to, the grasslands and forests have returned. It's not exactly like it was a thousand years ago, but it's going in a direction of more wild animals. In fact, you know, where I live in Berkeley, where you guys probably are too, you know, we have problems with too many wild animals, like the societies don't know what to do with it. Michael, you spent a lot of your younger life uh, living and working in various underdeveloped parts of the world, and that really informs a lot of your outlook, and it really goes through this book in a lot of cases where your first thoughts often go to the lives of the poorest people, and you talk a lot about the use of charcoal for wood and the indoor pollution from cooking over wood and charcoal fires. How big a problem is that? It's huge, and we don't pay nearly enough attention to it. I mean, here you have one to two billion people in the world that still depend on wood as their primary source of energy. 
And I, I trained as an anthropologist. I consider myself a journalist these days, but I certainly spent a lot of time interviewing small farmers around the world, Africa, Asia, Latin America. And they all complain about the same thing, which is just how much time it takes to go chop wood, gather wood, start fires. I mean, one of the things that poor people spend money on when they get a little bit of money, and if you're a small farmer, you don't have hardly any money, you'll spend a little bit of money to get charcoal because you can light a charcoal fire under a pot of beans and leave it and go do something else with your time. So that's the big dynamic. Now, of course, they're breathing toxic smoke. Wood smoke is terrible for the lungs. It shortens the lives of people, you know, a decade or more. But I think it's that understanding. It's good for people to move towards more labor efficient forms of production, whether in energy or food production or whatever. And when you read the original thinkers behind the Green New Deal, it's always about moving. And they say this explicitly moving towards more labor-intensive forms of energy and food production. It's literally, it's just Ludditeism or Luddism, I guess is the word. When there's a physical process that is much more fundamental to economic growth, which is just increased labor, land, and, and energy productivity. So you're just making these resources produce more output and that that's not a bad thing as the regressive left, the Malthusian left has argued. It's a really great thing for people and the natural environment. Let's talk about that Malthusian thing. You know, uh, Thomas Malthus, the, the great pessimist that human population would grow until it crashed and that we would never be able to sustain uh, uh, growing populations had a big influence on modern environmentalism. A lot of people that are on the left end of environmentalism, they don't, not only do they not agree with you, they think that capitalism and markets are the problem. And the only way to solve climate change is to, quote unquote, dismantle capitalism. Well, this is so interesting. This was a stone in my shoe for a decade, which is that if you know anything about Malthus, and he's this late 18th century economist who predicted that humans would inevitably overpopulate, have too many kids, and then suffer periodic famines. He was totally wrong. He was wrong at the time, and he's been wrong ever since. He's been completely discredited. But certain groups of people at certain points in time love this idea, and they are called Malthusians. You're pretty scathing of the environmental movement and also very critical of the left on the environment and on capitalism. However, there's also some criticism to go around uh, and, and more than a little at the Trump administration. The president has been actively opposed to addressing the climate and he's also dismantled or is trying to dismantle a bunch of important environmental regulations that limit methane and, and air pollution and water pollution. So what about the threat from the right? Yeah, I still consider myself a moderate Democrat. I still consider myself liberal. Um, but what I would like to see is the Republican Party have an environmental agenda. And the right environmental agenda, I obviously think, is what I'm now calling environmental humanism or what has been called eco-modernism. And it's this idea that you got to move towards more power-dense energy sources. Um, you got to uh, have higher power densities in, in agriculture. And I would like to see... So, yes, in answer to your question, I, of course, I agree with you. This Republican opposition to all environmental regulations is stupid. 
you know, including, by the way, opposing regulations to protect species that depend on the wind, like birds and bats and insects. It needs to be overthrown. And I think once the conservatives and the Republicans do that and start challenging environmentalists on their own issue, it will be better for those of us that consider ourselves more moderate Democrats. And so I hope that Republicans read Apocalypse Never and steal all of the ideas in it and use it to bludgeon the radical left, which is our common enemy and is really the enemy of the well-being of humanity. You call your, your worldview environmental humanism. Describe what the world would look like in, say, 100 years if we follow the path you're recommending. What does it look like? Well, I, I do think we're in a, this is a moment where I do think it's a moment that challenges people who think that, that the history of the world is written or that the future is determined. I think we're in a moment of incredible chaos. I briefly mention it, but I do think some of the apocalyptic mood that's in the world right now is just related to the fact that the global system is changing. It's reverting back from this you know, bipolar, you know, dual block, Western alliance. I think it's reverting towards nationalism. I think that's creating a lot of anxiety, particularly for liberals who have a lot invested in the post-war Western alliance. I would like to see conservative parties, center-right parties, Republicans in the United States, conservative parties in Europe, really articulate a strong environmental agenda. I think it will have an impact. I think that advocating for nuclear in some ways is the flagship cause. So I think we'll see an expansion of nuclear I think uh, eventually we'll see the Russians and the Chinese compete with the World Bank in terms of who's going to really help poor countries to develop and that the West will have to get with it. That's my hope. That's the optimistic version. My, my less optimistic version is that the West is in a state of complete decadence and we cede the world to China and Russia who are illiberal forces. I mean, I think the stuff that's happening in China right now with the genocide against the Uyghur minority is horrifying. It should be a wake-up call to any country in the world that wants to partner with, with that particular communist dictatorship, which is just violates human rights as a matter of business without thought, without concern. It treats people as means to an end rather than ends of himself, which has always been the goal of Western liberalism and enlightenment. Michael Schellenberger, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thanks, Jim. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Coming up, our recommendation and conversation, Jim, it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. 
What's your lockdown media recommendation for us this week, Richard? Well, I thought I'd continue with the environmental theme. There's a new book that's come out by two Republican environmentalists, and it's called In This Together, How Republicans, Democrats, Capitalists, and Activists Are Uniting to Tackle Climate Change and More. And this is put together by uh, Trammell Crow, who is a well-known Texas real estate uh, developer and investor, and Bill Shireman, who's also an investor. And they are the organizers of something called EarthX, which is an annual event which brings together environmental activists and business leaders to talk about solutions uh, for the environment. Very interesting movement. And there's some interesting ideas in this book. That sounds great. And it's an important thing that I think is getting overlooked that should not be turned into a partisan battle. We won't win on the environment if we're driving away potential allies. And there are a lot of people who are conservatives or Republicans who are becoming more focused on this issue. Now it's our conversation, Jim. This interview challenges us to think about our views on climate change and the environment, and that's a good thing, even if you strongly disagree with Michael Schellenberger, as I do. But the tone of what we just heard is is troubling. Michael Schellenberger is somewhat mocking and disdainful of his opponents. He challenges not only their allegedly alarmist views, but also sometimes their motives. And I think that by doing so, he's a lot less effective in his argument than he could be. You know, I see this discussion about the environment and climate change as a race we have to win rather than a war that is being fought against our enemies. I suggest it's better to appeal to it's probably better to appeal to the better angels of those you disagree with, borrow some of their language and framing of an issue and show some respect. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm I I hear what you're saying on that. Uh but Michael's been part of this movement for his whole adult life and and done a lot of really important work and he has also become frustrated with some extremism you see from the left wing of the environmental movement that says things like anyone who doesn't agree with us is just killing people or, you know, talk about criticizing motives. It's a standard tactic on the left side of environmentalism to completely denigrate anyone who has a slightly different approach. So I think that I'm not saying they started it, but I am saying that 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 perhaps we need to dial down the temperature a little bit on both sides. And his biggest point here is that there's this apocalyptic rhetoric coming from too many environmentalists on the left that that are taking genuine, serious, important problems and then blowing it up as if everything is on the verge of a world-ending crisis instead of looking for areas where there is progress, applauding solutions. Instead, it's this kind of all or nothing, scorched earth style but that's, of argumentation. that's exactly what Michael Schellenberger does. In his interview, he says, quote, the radical left is the enemy 
of the well-being of humanity. It's that take no prisoners argument right. that you're criticizing the left for. I mean, yeah. I, I couldn't disagree with him more. We need our radicals sometimes to alert us to wrongs and injustice. And, and, and climate protests can galvanize support for the environmental movement by sounding the alarm. And I, I don't think that people who feel that climate change is a very serious crisis, which Michael Schallenberger apparently doesn't think it is, uh, that, that people who say that are necessarily alarmists. And I think that it is important to, to sound the alarm. Right. I got you. But once you've sounded the alarm, what's your policy? If the policies of the radical left are going to make the climate worse, and I actually agree with him that many of those policies would, then then I do think we need to divide the idea that climate change is an important problem that we need to tackle from the people who say climate change is so important that we have to have a global Marxist revolution. Yeah, no, but I think he's hugely exaggerating the point made by a lot of environmentalists. I don't think that most environmentalists are captives of what he calls the radical left. And if there's going to be true progress made on the environment, a lot of it is going to have to come from the right, which is currently in the grip of climate denial. Um, so if you're going to convince people who you disagree with, just going like a blowtorch against their arguments is, is I don't think, the way to be successful. Right. Okay. So we're on the same page there. Uh, you and I are both advocates for, for meeting around sensible policies that are actually scientifically based. But if you were in a movement you felt very passionate about and you felt it was getting hijacked by extremists who were using the label of your movement to advocate for very, very different policies that don't actually address the problem. Wouldn't you be frustrated? I would be, but I don't think the, the environmental movement is being hijacked by extremists. I think that's, that is alarmism in itself. What are some of the best-selling books in the field? <laughs> Naomi Klein. Yeah, I and mean, one of the best-selling books on the right, the same argument can be made. I, isn't I, it bad when it happens on the right? Isn't that a bad thing? Shouldn't it, it be criticized? Yes, and I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't criticize people who are uh, sweeping in their, in their arguments. I mean, but, but I feel that Michael Schellenberger is borrowing a lot of the tone of the people he's he, he criticizes. I mean, the whole issue is much more complex than merely attacking those people who you disagree with. Okay. What I would suggest is uh, people who feel like you do should read the book because it challenges a lot of those neat, plausible solutions that happen to be wrong. You know, things like, say, organic farming sounds great, Turns out it's bad for habitat. It's bad for protecting wild species because it, for, it takes up so much land. So I think when we have a, lot, a set of beliefs that we're very comfortable with, we feel passionately about, that's exactly when you need to read someone who's willing to be contrarian. Maybe sometimes the tone is more oppositional than it needs to, to be. But if people are advocating counterproductive policies in a crisis, that's really a problem. So I say, have your ideas challenged. That's the point of really, you know, being open-minded and being rigorous about trying to come up with policies that really work in any area. And people like Michael, I think, perform a valuable service by shaking us out of our comfortable dogmatism of things we believe to be true that may not actually be true. You know, I read the 
uh, every day read the uh, op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal. And, and I would say about 80% of what's in those pages I disagree with. But the arguments that I find that are the most convincing are the ones that are put in a positive light, uh, the ones that don't treat me as if I'm an idiot if I don't agree with the author already. Do it in a, in, a, in a way that's respectful and it has a little bit more intellectual humility. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But when you, you think about intellectual humility, I think there's something impressive about somebody who's willing to look back on a lot of ideas over a career and admit where he's been wrong. And that a lot of the narrative of the book is about that. It, it, it's not quite the slash and burn uh, tome that that um, it might seem in a, in a short summary. It's really a very fascinating piece of work. Yeah, I guess on this one, we'll have to agree to disagree. Jim, thanks a lot. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. This is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Uh, check out our website at DaviesContent.com. Our producer, as always, is Miranda Schaefer. Thanks, Miranda, for doing a wonderful job of editing and mixing and generally making us sound much better, or at least not so bad. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.